If you grew up evangy as an evangelical Christian as I did, or maybe in a broader way in a Christian background, you may have received a similar training around doubt, the D word. If we doubted the beliefs that were being handed to us, there was obviously something wrong with us and not the belief systems. We were the problem for asking too many questions or pointing out the hypocrisy or maybe just noticing the delineation between the founder of Christianity and the institution. I don't know. Doubt was a dirty word. The road to ruin, as my dad used to call it. But if you doubted, if your faith wasn't working out for you, if you had to leave that paradigm behind, or if you're in the midst of leaving it now, guess what? You're not alone. I once had a friend say to me, frustration is the beginning of creativity. Because when we're frustrated with something, when it's not working out for us anymore, when there's something internally inside us, our inner compass is pulling us in a new direction and we listen, it's because there's something new that's wanting to emerge in our lives, or maybe a new framework, a new paradigm, a new, bigger, broader, better way. When I was a teenager going through my first wave of mega doubts, I found a tremendous amount of comfort in the words and writing of today's guest, Brian McLaren. Brian is an author, he's a speaker, he's an activist, and a public theologian. He's written many books, among them the book that got me started back when I was 18, 19, A New Kind of Christian. He's also the author of A Generous Orthodoxy, um, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road, which is one of my favorites, which explores the intersection of religious identity and human solidarity. And his most recent book, Faith After Doubt, which boldly declares that actually only doubt can save the world, is part of what we'll be discussing on today's show. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you on episode four of season one of Unknowing. So, Brian. Yes. The first time that you and I met was actually, I can't, I was trying to remember <laughs> when this was. I think I was 18. And it was at Mars Hill Bible Church. And I was a staff member then, probably one of the youngest part-time workers, writing curriculum for the youth group. And then all these years later, all this life and journeying and emergence <laughs> later, we reconnected at the Center for Action and Contemplation. But I'm so grateful to have you on the show today. And even as I was prepping for this episode, it was like this sense of like reconnecting with a favorite uncle was the way that it felt <laughs> was like we were going to get coffee and go for a walk and I was so comforted and excited about that because the last four years have held for me two very intense dark nights you know four years ago I experienced assault trauma divorce back to back to back and then found this incredible oasis and in a new community of belonging at the Center for Action and Contemplation this this wild magnet for everybody yes. who's post, <laughs> post-evangelical, post-Catholic, post-whatever, but people who were hungry for an alternative way of belief. Um, but then the last couple years, heartbreak, more pain, institutional heartbreak, and then sprinkle in a global pandemic. Yeah. And here we are <laughs> in an unknown wilderness, myself in it personally, but also 
we're in it collectively, emerging out of this time, not sure about what's next. So I'm so grateful that you took the time to have this conversation with me. Thank you so much for being on Unknowing. Well, it's uh, it's a pleasure. And yeah, it's a little spooky to think about how many years have passed. And when I think about the challenges and pain you've been through and that all of us have been through, it brings me to a wise old saying. If, you know, there's Murphy's Law, if there's ever McLaren's wise old saying, it'll just be this, survival is underrated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it really seriously is, especially this past year. I mean, I'm I'm like thinking about there was this one moment. I'm trying to remember when it was. Must have been right before the holidays when it was like things got really dark again, you know, and we knew we weren't going to be able to gather with anyone. And yeah. and it occurred to me that I hadn't been touched by another adult. It was just me and the kids, but I hadn't been touched by another adult in so long that I literally, after a really tough day of solo parenting, pressed myself up against the wall on my staircase. And it was like I was trying to squeeze myself <laughs> into the house as if the house could just hold me, <laughs> just hold, just oh, get me boy. through house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's been a rough one. So usually to begin, I like to ask about the maps that were handed to you, the maps that you began with or have used for most of your life, the lens that we've inherited or picked up to make sense of reality. And I know that most of my listeners are probably very familiar with your story and your work, but I wonder if to begin, could you share a little bit about the main maps that you have either inherited or that you have hung on to for the majority of your life? I know there have been several, but... Sure, sure. Well, I, I grew up, uh, I was born in upstate New York, and my parents, uh, two kind of significant things about them. One is they were both very conservative, evangelical, a little sect called the Plymouth Brethren most people have never heard of. It happens to be where Garrison Keillor grew up as well. Uh, he calls it the Sanctified Brethren in his Lake Wobegon show. Uh, so, you know, I grew up with that map of conservative Christianity and a particular flavor of it. And then the other thing is that my dad was a doctor. And so my dad, you know, was a man of science in his day job. And I've always had a love and interest for science and the natural world and the outdoors and so on. So those are, have been two kind of sometimes competing, sometimes complementary maps that have uh, been with me. Hugely so, both belief and science. It's sort of like you were handed a blueprint for the spiritual realm and a blueprint for the physical realm. And I can't help but ask this next question, even though I know the answer, but I like to focus in on the moments when we reach the end of our map's usefulness or where something forces us to put two maps together and see them overlaying on top of each other. And so with these two maps that you were given, Brian, what was the moment when you realized that it wasn't the full story, either one or the other, or in putting them together, you discovered a whole new terrain? Yeah, I... I have a memory, uh, I was somewhere between 11 and 13 years old, maybe 14. I was in Sunday school class. I loved science. As I said, I would go to the library. This is, you know, long before the internet. And uh, I would check out every book on trees and plants and birds and reptiles and dinosaurs and weather. I was interested in weather. And like, I checked out all the books in the kids section. So then I went to the, you know, high school section. And pretty soon I was 
you know, bringing home college textbooks because I wanted to learn more. So I just loved science. And I remember a Sunday school class. I must have asked, what about evolution? Maybe that we were reading Genesis 1 or something. I must have said, what about evolution? And I have this memory of my teacher saying, with just no emotion, no tension, oh, you have to make a choice. You either believe in God or you believe in evolution, uh, one or the other. And it, it wasn't like he was upset or tense. It was just like, oh, it's a choice you make. And I remember thinking, okay, evolution makes a lot of sense to me. Four, five years, and I'm out of here. But between now and then, I need to just keep this opinion I have about evolution quiet. <laughs> and I think that's how it often happens for people. They carve out a space and say, I have permission to be different. Uh, you know, my, my mother grew up, you know, in the same uh, tradition, and her background was even more strict than mine. And she told me she loved novels when she was a child, which I also did. I became an English major. And she told me her grandfather, who lived with them, would yell at her whenever he saw her reading a novel. Why are you filling your head with those lies, he'd say. Um, and the implication was you should be reading the Bible, which is truth and not fiction. And so she told me she would pull the covers over her head at night and read under the covers. So that was her way of saying, I know you don't approve of this, Grandpa, but I love where fiction takes me and I'm going to do it anyway. So I think that's part of how it works for us. Uh, and of course, sometimes we can live with playing multiple games. Um, so we play the religious game by religious rules and then we play the school game by school rules and the social game by social rules. But at some level, part of us wants to say, I sure wish I lived in one world where I, I could integrate my, my mm. rules. Yeah, let's. I want to dive into that that moment when we either begin to integrate the maps that we're given with our experience, with the secrets that you're mentioning, because it's as if you know you're describing your mom. I had moments like that. Yeah, I'm sure all the listeners have had moments like that. But it's that that trap door inside you to that other place where you keep the secrets of your own experience where you treasure them, where you know they're real and true and can be trusted. But it, it's like you have to put them in that Narnia inside yourself because they're almost too magical or too special mm -hmm. for the world of rationalization yes. that we live in, this world that tries to make sense out of yeah. everything in very linear ways. You do this, then this, then this. So I'm really curious about the moment when, for you, you fell through, the experience maybe was not one of just instinct of like, I think this is, I know that evolution is like, I believe that this is probably true. Yeah. And so I'm just gonna tuck that away. But talk to me about the moment when you actually stepped forward and trusting that instinct, maybe yeah. over and beyond the maps where you just said, yeah. okay, I'm gonna move into that now, you know, no matter what the consequences yeah. are. You know, all of us are unique in this, but one feature for me is that I'm a firstborn son and I think I'm very dutiful and I wanna play by the rules. So I did my very, very best to play by everybody's rules. And I just had a book come out this year called Faith After Doubt. And, and what I would say for me is it, it didn't happen, there wasn't one moment, but there were four movements. And so the way I say oh, it is, perfect. I grew up in simplicity, which is faith before doubt, where I'm just believing what my authority figures tell me. You know, that's where we begin. And that simplicity tends to be dualistic because in a way, dualism is a matter of survival. Is this safe or dangerous, edible or toxic, friend, enemy, that kind of a thing. So that 
that's where I started. In some ways, that evolution moment is when I began to move into the second stage that I would call complexity, where we say, you know what, life isn't as simple as my authority figures told me. And so I've got to start dealing with the complexity. And we might, we move from uh, dualism to pragmatism. How can I make things work? I got to get an A on my test at school, and I've got to stay out of trouble with the Sunday school teacher. And I, I, in a sense, I compartmentalize and I learn the rules of multiple games. Um, and that really served me well for a long time. Uh, you might say stage one for me is faith before doubt. Stage two is faith managing doubt. <laughs> Everything is fixable. Oh, this is a problem, but we'll figure it out. And then uh, I think when I hit graduate school, that's when I really was pushed into what I call stage three perplexity, where I said, you know what? The maps I was given are unfixable. And now it's faith in doubt. In fact, it's everything in doubt. And it's when, in a sense, you take out from your toolbox critical thinking and you start to develop skills with critical thinking and everything is in doubt. And that was another period where I thought, I'm out of Christianity. I, it's just not going to work. The problem was I was a pastor <laughs> in stage three. And, and negotiating <laughs> that is another whole story we could talk about if you want. But I remember the moment where, in a sense, I was fighting to stay in that stage two because I didn't like being in stage three. And I was on a pastor's retreat at this retreat center in uh, Texas, Catholic retreat center. And I was churning because all of these doubts were there. And being around other pastors just intensified it. Like, and I took a walk. There was this desert garden as part of this retreat center. I was walking before anybody else was awake. And I don't know if you know what a Palo Verde tree is, but it's this tree that most of the time doesn't have any leaves, just sort of a green, means green stick. And I'm standing in front of this tree, and I just thought, the house of cards is crumbling. And I'm not going to try to save it. I'm going to let it crumble. And whatever happens, I'll deal with it. But it's unsalvageable. And that was a moment, I think, where I just said, okay, can't fight it anymore. This is where I am. And in some ways, it was a moment of saying, better to embrace unknowing than to keep killing myself trying to manufacture knowing. Oof. On so many levels, that hits home, you know, personally and collectively, there's this sense in which maybe the pandemic has baptized us into maybe seeing, really recognizing the fallacy of our obsession with knowing yeah. and how we construct our lives around that, how we measure our progress against these arbitrary lines of arrival yeah. that we've created, yeah. you know? And I think because I was so steeped in that world of, you know, the evangelical world and the post-evangelical world, and then into, um, you know, kind of the part of this moving wave into contemplation and the contemplative world or the, the study of the mystics that so many people have found a, a new home in mm -hmm. because the world that we came from, the maps were so restrictive. They were so unwilling to bend into or be added to. And I'm so glad that you brought up your book because that's exactly where I wanted to go in talking about those four stages because you mentioned losing faith, I, I kind of losing faith in the gatekeepers. And I know this is like silly, but I'd like to read this quote because it was so 
it really resonated with me where you say, I was a very loyal person, as you just mentioned, respectful of authority and always ready to give the benefit of the doubt to my tradition and its spokespeople. But over time, I not only lost confidence in many of the beliefs that gatekeepers required, I lost faith in the gatekeepers themselves and their whole system of using beliefs as markers of belonging. I want to talk about that discovery of like, it's, it's one thing, because I, you know, I know that a lot of the Gen X generation has received like, the postmodern cynicism and doubt, you know, it's sort of like, all I do is like play Nirvana in the background and picture somebody with a flannel wrapped around their waist. And of course, they're like, yeah, man, I just don't believe in anything. It's like, yeah. <laughs> but then there's us, the millennials who came after that. And I feel that our experience is not one of pure deconstruction. It's not one of absolute doubt. It's of this 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 thing, this intersection you mentioned in this quote. It's of of losing faith in the gatekeepers themselves and the whole system yeah. of using faith as a marker of belonging. That it's more that. It's not a loss of you know, faith or belief in what's possible or spirituality. So I want to talk about that a little bit, this place of like losing faith in the gatekeepers. And and I've mentioned this to you that I've seen this happen even at the Center for Action and Contemplation, where, you know, it has become such a magnet for so many of us who felt displaced from our spiritual circles or our circles of belonging, so many posts who were looking for a meaningful and positive way of practicing spirituality. Yeah. Um, but it's almost like this human tendency to want to project power. It just just happens. Well, they must know. <laughs> it's so strong. So even at the CAC, we trade the term priest for wisdom teacher yeah. or one set of language for an updated non-dual one yeah. um, and somehow manage to turn the alternative orthodoxy into a new set of stone tablets. Yeah. So, what do we do? What is this process, as you've written about it in Faith After Doubt, these four stages, what, what is it about human beings that want to calcify the process of faith into beliefs that we can hang on to? It's funny. The, uh, to me, the obvious answer to that is what we were just talking about a few minutes ago. It's evolution. It, it, <laughs> I mean, if you think of it this way, we have been evolving. Uh, our, our species, they say, has been around 200,000 years, maybe. But, you know, we're part of this lineage of primates that's been around for seven or eight million years, this branch of the uh, tree. And then, but, you know, the primate brain came from a mammalian brain that came from a reptilian brain that came from a fish brain. And so our brains develop, our brains are so amazing, but they develop with efficiency in mind. And to keep an organism alive is a lot of work for a brain to do. There's a lot of danger out there. Uh, watch out, you know, a, a saber-toothed tiger might be behind that rock. And, uh, and watch out, your best friend might have gotten mad at you and wants to kill you. So we're always on vigilance and our brain is trying to be efficient and protect us from danger. And I think that absolutely understandable, in fact, unavoidable desire for efficiency explains a lot of what we're talking about. Um, my brain doesn't want to have to refigure out the universe every day. So we try to put things in a category of we've got that figured out so that we can deal with the next set of challenges. And to me, that's, it's unavoidable. And it's why the kind of conversation we're having and the struggles we're talking about are absolutely inescapable from being human. Yeah. 
Wow. So it's like, it's actually quite comforting to hear you describe it as a natural part of the evolutionary process, because we're somewhat conditioned, Brian, to think that when we find ourselves in states or stages or times of unknowing, that we've done something wrong, that somehow we've, <laughs> for some reason, I just thought of the phrase my dad used to say to me, you're on the road to ruin. <laughs> you know, it's like you've, you've fallen off the cross, the path toward yeah. the light. You're yeah. <laughs> some, you know, and, um, and I think many of us carry that, that imprint of shame that if we are in the period of deep unknowing, of unsaying, necessary unsaying, that we've done something wrong, but you're telling us, no, this is actually the way. This is the only way to be human is to go through these times. Yeah, and if I could add one other evolutionary dimension to it, it's that we evolved as herd creatures. You know, we are pack, mm -hmm. we're like packs of wolves or hives of bees. And part of being a herd creature is that our brain says, your survival depends on fitting in. And uh, so this huge part of our brain wants to fit in. But what happens when the group that we happen to be part of is saying or doing or believing things and requiring us to fit in and we don't actually fit in? Um, and if we, I think it can help us give ourselves a break to say, oh, of course I'm feeling stressed because my group wants me to fit in. And my brain wants to fit in, but another part of my brain says, I don't fit in. And, and managing that tension is an exhausting reality. And then we can say, well, I'll just leave that group. But then you say, okay, I, I'll find a new group. But guess what? If you stay with that group long enough, you won't fit in with them either. <laughs> that's it. That's exactly it. Yeah. And that's, you know, without cynicism, that's been my experience again and again and again and again, where it's like growing up as a missionary kid, yeah. there's that reality to breaking out of that into the progressive evangelical realm. There's one reality. Then you break out of that and you go to the, you know, the super mystical non-dual <laughs> realm. And again, it happens again because, and I'm again, so glad you brought up herd and hive because that was going to be my next question, which is there is this necessary component of life, of not doing life alone. So we need each other, but how to navigate? How do we navigate when, when we find our inner compass moving us beyond the realms of belonging, beyond the walls of belonging of a particular group, and we emerge from that, there is, there's a loss. There's, there's grief, which you write about. And I wonder if you could share with us about what your insights are on the necessary process of going through that grief and why maybe that is another barrier to our evolution because many of us get right up to that grief and then it's like oh shit I don't want to go through that yes. <laughs> I don't want to be lonely I don't want to feel these feelings yes. I don't want to be with my body in this yes. so we run back so tell us about that threshold yeah. in the process of becoming yeah well the big feeling I have at this moment talking with you about this Brie is just that we have to have a lot of compassion on ourselves and everybody else uh, it is complicated being a human being. It's complicated having this evolutionary heritage of this brain that, uh, you know, really is wired for certain things. And now we have to deal with it. And I think one of the things that we, maybe this enables us to do, is to have the right kind of grace with ourselves and each other. And so I say, of course, there are gatekeepers 
who, when I have the nerve to write a book that challenges something they believe, will attack it with venom and fury. Of course they're going to do that because they are wired into how much their group means to them, but how their particular group gets its unity based on agreeing to a set of beliefs that I'm now challenging. Of course they're going to be upset. What do I expect them to give me a, 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 an award? <laughs> you know, do I want a golden globe for disturbing the peace? I mean, what's going on? So, you know, I, I, and part of this is just being realistic. And, and, and it's very hard to do alone, which is why I think one of the things that we tend to do when we feel we don't fit in the group is we try to find at least one other misfit. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things I say in stage, in stage one simplicity is people are dependent or codependent with their group. In stage two, they try to be independent to learn to think for themselves. In stage three, we become counter-dependent because we're always leveraging ourselves against the groups that have formed us, but that we're struggling to maintain some integrity in relation to. And then I think, you know, a stage four, we learn to be interdependent, which is in a way we learn to combine dependence, independence, and counter-dependence because in a way, interdependence means combining all of those skills. Can I share this with you in a really interesting way right now? Um, so who knew when this book, Faith After Doubt, came out that a lot of Mormons would find it helpful? And I have been in amazingly meaningful conversations with several different Mormon groups. And for some reason, the word got out, this is a book for all of the young Mormons. It's no choice that they had no choice of what they were brought up. And they're going through the same kind of questions you went through as a young evangelical and I went through in their tradition. And so the experience I'm having in a number of conversations is that I can tell that every Mormon who talks to me feels that I get what they're going through and I have something to offer, but they're also deeply afraid that if they, am I able to handle their difficulty gently or am I going to make fun of it? Am I going to shame them for still believing a lot of it? And do I believe any of it? And, and I can just feel the delicacy of that, you know. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that I feel so fortunate. I've had those conversations with Mormons. Guess what? I've had them with Jews. I remember my friend who's a rabbi, we were having breakfast together at a buffet and she got a plate full of bacon. <laughs> and I just thought, this is so perfect. And uh, we didn't say anything about it. I just, but I just thought, I get why a rabbi, when she's with a non-Jew, would want a plate full of bacon. You know, Needs to do it. <laughs> exactly. And I remember being with a group of Muslims and I was the uh, I, you know, it was the only non-Muslim and we we're in a pub in England and they all had a couple beers. And it was this sense that I understand that, right? I, and I think there's a way that we learn how to give that grace to other people and to ourselves because we're all, we all belong to groups and we rest with them more or less uneasily. Ugh. It's so tender the way you're describing this way of holding the manyness. Yeah of our experience and the the multivocality of those moments like and in your book you talk about harmony and i was so just pleased with that because it felt as a musician it felt so resonant as like oh that's that's what 
that's what this feels like. It feels like learning to live in the harmony of those different notes. Whereas, and I'd like to touch upon this as a, maybe as a foil to this compassionate, spacious tenderness that you're describing or this tender way, because it feels like our culture wants us to stay in counter dependence. And so much of our culture right now is about the blame game and the call outs and the, um, I was describing to somebody my need to step away from social media right now. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm fresh out of opinions. I'm just, I'm fresh out. (laughs) I cannot be a part of the loud, opinionated machinery of social media right now. And I had to take a step back and ask myself, is that because of my my whiteness, my privilege? Is that, am I not doing my part? But I think it's something else. It's about this attack, attack, attack. What do you notice about that, Brian, about social media and that the ways in which it's, it seems as if we're being told that counterdependence should be the loudest note? No, don't live in harmony with graciousness, you know? What is that? Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I... I don't know if I can answer that, Brie, but uh, it brings a, an experience a couple of years ago to mind before the pandemic when we still traveled and I was at a retreat and I was with an African-American Buddhist uh, teacher and she is brilliant and she is fierce at confronting white supremacy and she gets it to her bones. And I've seen her challenge people with fierceness, but we're in this other context. And she said, she started talking about how much compassion she has for white people. Mm. And she said, I think white supremacy for many people is driven by fear. She said, once you find out what your people did to other people, your deepest fear is that if they find out, they'll do it to you. And so your fear of having others do to you what your ancestors did to them makes you desperately afraid of ever acknowledging what your ancestors did to them. And she said, I wish I could give white people this message. Why would we ever want to be like white people? (laughs) Why would we ever want to do to other people what they have done to us? That's the last thing we want. And when she said that, I just suddenly felt like she was giving the white people in the room this freedom, you know? And it wasn't freedom to not take the issue seriously because we are in a time, a a life and death struggle in, in so many ways. But she was creating a space to say, I know your secrets. I know your history and I know your fear and I know the challenge that is for you. And rest assured, I will not do to you what your ancestors did to me. I will not do that. I don't want to do that. There are ways that we find out how to change the game, you know? And and I think this is one of our big challenges. It may be that Twitter, because of its structure, won't ever be a place that can change the game very well. Although it may be. I have a few friends who the way they behave on Twitter changes the game. Hmm. But here's the thing. The game is complicated. And right now, for some people, their objective in the game is to make other people feel guilty and to cause division and to upset people. And as I think, as it should be. Mm -hmm. I think the job right now is to intensify division. And at the same time, the job 
is to not let the division become hateful and to pull it back from the brink of violence. But here's the thing. I don't think we will get to a better place until the pain of being where we've been becomes high enough. So, yeah, there it is. I'm just rambling, but... Damn, though, on that note of like allowing that note to get loud is what you're saying, is that there's room for that to get loud. And there's room for the integration of that into silence as well, which is the, the place in which you can kind of stand back and hold those notes in harmony. There's a little bit of differentiation yeah. that needs to happen between the notes, right? Yes, in order yes, for there yes, to even yes, be a chord. Yes. So what you're saying is, let it be loud. And in many ways, I feel the invitation for myself is to just lean into where the oxygen is moving. And, and even in the realm of social media, I think it's like millennials and younger, we all just need to be reminded on the regular that it's a choice. <laughs> <laughs> that this is this in you know this uh, relating to these platforms is something we're choosing to do, and that we can choose to step away from it for a time. <laughs> you know, it's really helpful for me to hear you say that because obviously, as a a boomer, I and my children are older millennials. But I think it's just important for me to remember what a different world people live in. And, and how we can live in the same world, but because we came of age at different times and different struggles were happening, we live in different worlds. And tell me if I've got this right, but I think one of the struggles you're articulating is that the systems that we know are deeply infiltrated with white supremacy and deeply infiltrated with heteronormativity and deeply infiltrated with patriarchy and, and all the rest, these systems, for my generation, like when I was coming of age, I'll never forget what well, we said, tear the system down because we were confronting it. But I think when people come of age at a point where the systems are actually in danger of being torn down, like January 6th sort of mm-hmm. said to people, or the fact that Trump could be a criminal. I mean, he the difference between the president and a crime family is indistinguishable that at that moment to feel simultaneously that the systems are so damaged and so corrupt, but if they're weakened to a certain point, we are even more screwed. I mean, that's a level of complexity that my generation, I don't think, had to deal with. And then you're, you're left with a different set of fears and a different set of challenges and different work to do. Yeah, and it that's articulated so well because that's one of the pieces that I find is difficult in the integration at this point. And I'm in my 30s, right? So I'm an elder millennial also. But this point of, this could topple into a nihilistic reality, post-apocalyptic reality so easily. And I think the pandemic highlighted that even more. January 6th highlighted that, as you mentioned. So what I find is that there's this new kind of new form of differentiation that is needing to happen from the pack, right? Which is so much of pack mentality now is calling everything out for its bullshit. But the hunger I sense in myself and in others is toward the beauty that can hold the harmony and hold it together. So I want to talk about that because, and I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but I just I want to be radically honest in case <laughs> on a lark it might be helpful for people, but I'm in this weird ass place, Brian, where 
so much in my life seems to need to be shushed, mm -hmm. uh, especially especially the colonizing rationality, you know, mm -hmm. even, even the mystical non-dual contemplative version of that yeah. needs to be hushed. The part that needs to explain itself, even to myself, it feels as if I need to let go of that. Maybe even including the part of me that you mentioned, like the people pleaser, the, the do well, yeah. the, you know, a lot of women are also going through this process of letting go of the good girl, the, you know, the pleaser, the, the dutiful daughter. And it's almost as if, and I said this to you, the scaffolding of my beliefs have fallen away. The blueprint has given way to an actual new something. And it doesn't need the training wheels of words to validate it. So this doesn't feel like doubt or deconstruction. So maybe this is part of what we're all emerging into, but like a falling through the other side of faith into just the simplicity of a shared sense of becoming. And is that some sort of faith after faith? what happens when it all falls open and falls away, you know, in the ways in which in your book you talked about, you described getting to a place where your experience of God and the love of God was no different than your experience of love with neighbor, love with family, love in relationship. Yeah. What is this weird place post description? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> and can I just yeah. say, I'm really glad you're, paying attention to it and going public with it and talking about it, because I think that has to happen. So it's just something I'm feeling kind of weird right now is, so I wrote this book, Faith After Doubt, as, as a seat with, as a two sort of book uh, thing. And the, and the sequel to this is called, Do I Stay Christian? And it's super relevant to what you're saying, because when you get to stage four, if you've really done the work of stage three, State, part of what happens at stage three is you face the depth of corruption and evil and wrong that are in your religion that has given you so much. Um, and you're not saying it's given me nothing. No, it's given me a lot. It's given the civilization a lot. But man, it's given has a lot of downsides too. And so when you're at that place and you've seen through so much, um, and, and I think you know you're at the pit of stage three, at sort of the deepest point of stage three, when it feels like you see through everything and everything is vanity uh, and, and, and vanity is all is vanity. Um, and, and, and I think you begin to come into stage four when you begin to see radiance return, but it doesn't just return to some things, it returns to everything. You know, there, I think that's a big part of what happens then. But then you're left with this thing. Well, do I still call myself a Christian? Because what is this? And, yeah, what is this radiance, luminous place that doesn't need words? Like, how do I live in that? Yeah, <laughs> how, do I, yeah. how do I explain the unexplainable of this new terrain? Yeah, and that's what I'm grappling with. And, uh, you know, I've been deep in this. And I think part of what happens and what I feel is so if I go back to my stage two or stage three self and harmony and perplexity. And I've got the evangelical gatekeepers breathing down my neck and writing books about me and articles about me and my friends. And, and I'm getting angry emails and literally, I mean, every week I've just got so many people telling me I'm going to hell and, and I know why they're doing it. They're doing it because they're trying to be good soldiers. And I can totally. imagine myself having written those letters as a good soldier myself. So, it was just so much pressure. 
And then I remember the moment where somebody could say, I don't think you're a true Christian. And I could say, oh, you might be right. At least by your definition, I'm sure I'm not. It's okay. But I had something really funny happen a couple months ago. I was being interviewed about this book for a secular bookstore. And the guy interviewing me was an atheist. And through the whole thing, he was trying to evangelize me for atheism. Like he, he, he was trying to say, you're almost there. You're almost there. Please just be where we are. <laughs> just say this one prayer, Brian, and you'll be an atheist. <laughs> right. But and I totally understood why he wanted me to do that because, in fact, he told me, he said, I constantly have people coming to me who've been damaged by religion, and I help them by telling them to be atheists, just get it over with, be done with the whole thing. And he saw what he was doing is so liberating. And in a way, he had found the way, right? Right, right. um, Sounds familiar. And and so, uh, so I think there's this sense where as soon as I understand why he wants to do that, it doesn't offend me. It makes perfect sense. And so I can't say that I'm always where I'm about to describe, but I can say occasionally my big toe gets into it halfway, which is to say, yeah, I don't care. And that's why I'm, I'm attracted to the word unknowing that you're using. It's not a way of saying, I don't know anything. It's a way of saying, I know so much. I know enough that I am not so impressed with needing to know. <laughs> And so it allows me to say, you want to call me a Christian? That's so fine. And that's, I, I'm that's, grateful you. Yeah. And you want to tell me not, yeah, I'm not a Christian? Oh, that's so fine. I understand why you'd want to say that. Yeah, I get it. It doesn't lead to a great argument. <laughs> um, but what a relief. Maybe that's the place that we're hungering to move into is a place where we're not beholden to the rules of the game of rational explications, you know? It's like maybe there is a deeper instinct that is emerging from our hearts and souls like a brook that's just like coming out of us, this hunger for living from a different center than the mind. And, you know, you were describing that place of being okay. And that's it because it's like, you know, I think a lot of times we talk about doubt and deconstruction. And I, I this is why I find your four phases really helpful because there is a certain phase where it's necessary to be reactionary and kind of against that counter voice that needs to be there. But that's not the place that I'm in right now. I don't feel like I have to burn the building down or whatever field I walk through. I don't feel like I need to burn it in my wake. It's like, no, that was a powerful part of my life. I'm grateful for it. You know, people arrive at the CAC's steps and it's like, I remember, I know that feeling of like, my people, I'm not crazy. I'm not alone. Who are these mystics? Like it is, it's beautiful and it's powerful to encounter that possibility. I think I was on a podcast recently where somebody said, are you just like a spiritual elite who doesn't believe in anything? And I said, you know, I'm sure I can act like an elitist all the time about everything, I'm sure of it, because I'm just an asshole, and so it's going to happen. But I said, no, I actually, I think I believe in everything. Mm. It's a different falling yeah. through. It's yeah. not a need to be against. Yeah. It's a place where, I mean, to quote Richard Rohr, everything can belong. Yeah. But I do find it to be a weirdly 
lonely place. And I want to talk about that because I don't know that we have collectively spent a lot, and by the way, stoked about your next book, <laughs> really, because I don't think we've spent a lot of time talking about where are we emerging into and what parts of institutionalization might be in the shedding process in the in or could we think of it as the midwifery of it you know like what are we giving birth to yeah um i really enjoyed the way that you described this stage four or just kind of the point of it all as faith expressing itself in love mm. and on this show, I like to blend in the principles of spiritual paths, you know, the teachings of the spiritual wisdom and creativity and what we know to be true about the process of creating mm. art. And I wondered, as I was thinking about that, faith expressing itself in love, is this how we could describe creativity? And is creativity the point of it all? To kind of get to the place where we stop ascribing all the power out and up, whether it be to yeah. a God in the sky or to this particular group that I belong to. And we begin to recognize that agency in ourselves to contribute something. Mm, mm, mm. Oh my goodness. I think you're really onto something there, Bree. I should just mention a dear friend of mine named Tom Willett just took the writings of a Russian philosopher named Nikolai Berdyaev and has a translation and makes it accessible. Uh, and it's a book called Creativity Will Save the World. And this uh. was an early 20th century Russian philosopher who among other things saw creativity as the essence of everything. And so it, it just came out. I think it's available now. So I just would highly recommend it. And as I was reading my friend's manuscript, I realized there would be a way of reading the Bible. If we say, for people like you and me, ideas of biblical inerrancy and even biblical authority, it, to me, it's just not, authority and inerrancy have nothing to do with why I would find the Bible of interest. Uh, if you want to make the Bible less appealing to me, use words like inerrancy or authority. <laughs> uh, in fact, that just almost poisons the, the whole ocean, right? Right. But if we say, what if this is a set of texts that is showing certain kind of creative genius? To think that the whole compilation begins with, in the beginning, the creator creates, and the spirit hovers over chaos with creativity, and then the thing ends with you know, the spirit inviting everybody to come be part of a new creation. I mean, the whole thing then just feels like, yeah, this is all about creativity. And then you think, how a religion with that beginning and ending to its sacred text became a conservative religion that was afraid of creativity and wanted to hold on to the past rather than move into the future, it, it's enough to make you scream <laughs> or laugh or cry or something because you just think, yeah, that's part of the genius here. And that's what I feel at this moment. And you said something before that I think was really profound when you said, what does faith look like? And what if faith stops being a list of beliefs and starts being the courage to trust unknowing as the only field of creativity? Mm, that's um, it. There, there's a, a philosopher, uh, no, I forget, was it? I, I, it was one of the Greek philosophers who had a, a discourse on the vacuum, a discourse on emptiness, and was saying basically, it's only where there's a vacuum, it's only where there's emptiness that anything new can happen. 
<laughs> but see, that takes me back to being, how old was I? 16, young senior in high school, and Mars Hill Bible Church had just started. And Rob Bell got up there and he gave a teaching on the prophets. And he said, you want to know why this world isn't full of prophets? It's because we have overscheduled our lives. There's no room for the dream to wake you up at night because we're too busy saying, okay, yeah, God, I will be available to you. <laughs> oh, great mystery of unknowing. I'll be available to you after I get this degree and meet my you know, partner-to-be and we have 2.3 kids and a house and the, the picket fence. And then once we get this much in our retirement, then you know, it's like we're spending our lives pushing out the mystery of not knowing. Yeah. Then it's like life has to intervene, step in and actually turn our lives upside down, like the pandemic, to say, yeah, all those plans, they don't mean anything yeah. because it's not real. In the present moment, you have no flipping clue. But that message really inspired me to the point where I actually like chucked all of the, um, I had gotten into all of these universities and colleges, and it was like this, it was this moment in my life where I was like, oh, I'm turning academia into another idolatry of safety and security. So I came home and told my parents I wasn't going to college. That went over super great. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always had this hunger to, to risk it, I yeah. guess, yeah. to be willing to risk stepping out of cultural norms just long enough to be in the discomfort, just long enough to see what happens when we do stay in that field of unknowing that you described. And this movement of faith as expression into creativity, that feels like love to yeah. me. But it doesn't feel like a love that we're just sitting here talking about in an esoteric or abstract way. It just it feels like very human. Mm. It doesn't necessarily feel precious or dressed in sacred robes either. It just, right. it feels like very familiar, like, yeah. oh, I know this place. So I want to ask you about creativity then, since we're on this thread. And, you know, I know that it's no great secret that you're a musician, but I want to know about how the role of being a musician has opened up that field of unknowing for you, or maybe caused you to trust it a little bit more. Yeah. You know, one of the blessings of my life looking back is that I was introduced to music and that improvisation is just something I started to enjoy even before I studied jazz. And I was lucky enough, I, I play guitar now, but I, my first real, I played piano, but my main instrument was saxophone and I was in a jazz group. But before I got into jazz, I would sit at the piano and just play two notes again and again, sort of minimalist, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I would improvise. My left hand would do two notes back and forth, back and forth, and then my right hand would improvise. And, and what I remember having this feeling like, I don't know what the next note will be, but I know it will come. <laughs> and it might be a clam every once in a while, but that's okay. That's part of finding the patterns and the groove to where the notes are gonna flow. And there is this sort of magic of creation out of nothing where it's not really out of nothing. It's because when you're a musician, you internalize all kinds of the rules of music. 
But there is this amazing thing that happens where it's going to come next. In fact, I, right before, you know, earlier this morning, I took a walk around my neighborhood, and there's one house I always like when I walk by because they have a big wind chime uh, in front of the house. And the wind chime has four, you know, pieces that do four notes. And today I heard the notes and I just, you know, mm-hmm, and I had those four notes and I just started making melodies through the rest of my walk around those four notes. And you just think the makings of a melody are there. They're always uh, there. And yeah. yeah, it's hard to explain, but I think it's one of the things that allows you to trust unknowing and allows you to say, what could be better than a blank piece of paper waiting to be filled? And then you think, all of those beliefs that brought me here, even though I've lost them, in a sense, not I, I haven't lost all of them, but so many of them I've lost. And I've lost all of them the way I used to hold them, as shortcuts to certainty. Um, but you think, but just the act of having something be full and then be cleared is this emptiness and opening and unknowing that creates new discoveries. Uh, creates the, Those new discoveries, as you said a minute ago, couldn't happen without the loss. It's so true. And it's almost as if I'm thinking about the reframe of, of those beliefs, the, the things that we hold so tightly to. And the image that came to me is when you said that about standing before the canvas, it's almost as if the weaving of the canvas mm. is the stage one and two and three and, yeah. and even four. Yeah. It's this yeah. weaving together yeah. of of what then becomes the foundation of our expression. Yes. So if that's the loom, our beliefs can then all belong, whether they were the simple ones that, that you know, sometimes we feel ashamed of because we think, oh, I was so naive to believe that. But there's something really sweet and tender and beautiful about that kind of trust. I don't want to lose that. Yes, yes, yes. I don't want to lose the childlike quality of how I prayed as a kid. I was talking to a friend recently, and I was like, I remember praying at age four for God to turn my eyes blue. And it was this very, <laughs> it was a persistent pursuit that I was at. Didn't work out. But it was like this sweet, sweet trust, you know? I don't want to lose that. And I also don't want to lose the counter voice of my, you know, late 20s and early 30s, the need to differentiate and be against. And so if all those things can belong, and then we can look at the canvas of it all, then it seems that the invitation is to go one step further. Don't just sit back and worship the canvas, but actually express something onto the canvas. And I, I wonder if creativity and music in your own life, and also maybe the, your deep love of the environment, because mm. I think this is another huge mm. teacher in your life yeah. that you've, you've opened up to a lot of us. Are these the relationships that have encouraged in you the creative confidence mm to slap some paint on, to be willing to risk that, you know, even if it means you're going to get the letters or the calls or the whatever, that to to even just like believe yourself capable of being um, an agent to the evolving story. Yeah. Wow. That's a great way to say it because there is that feeling that's so common among creative people, poets, writers, actors, musicians, like, Whoa, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> uh, you know, wow, I was trying to say that. I didn't see that coming. And uh, oh, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, that is uh, so much 
how it goes. And, and one of the things I want to say is I don't think that is only there at stage four. I think that's happening at each of the stages in its own way, you know, according to our capacities at that, at that point. But it does feel there's a choice people make. It's like you're offered one set of pleasures that are the pleasures of defending the status quo and, and the pride of knowing and the thrill of being right. And then another set of pleasures, and they're real pleasures of saying, I don't know, but I might find out. Or not knowing means I can indulge my curiosity. Or who knows? I can play, exactly. And they're like, they're both pleasures. And you can't have both at exactly the same time, I think. We, we probably all negotiate between those two sets of pleasures. By the way, that, as, as soon as I say that, it reminds me of my uh, friends, Jeffrey and Amy Ulrich, who've written this beautiful book called The Six Needs of Every Child. That's one of the best books on parenting I've seen anywhere. And it's based on attachment theory. And attachment theory says our fundamental experience as children is wanting to stay close to mommy and daddy stay close because there's safety there and explore and explore the big world on my own. And the need to be attached and detached, the need to have safety and adventure, that that's formative to our entire being. Yeah. It's so critical. And it's, I just recently had a conversation with an artist where she was describing this dual edged sword of discipline and chance. And it feels like what we know to be true about music, Brian, which is like, yeah, you know enough theory so that you can play. And you play to build on the theory, you know? And it's this reciprocal relationship of the in and the out breath, the expression and then the quiet that I think is very comforting for me to be rooted in in this moment. And as we wrap up this, and I'm like, oh, I hope that maybe you'd be willing, and I, I, I'm sorry to throw this on you, but like part two conversation at some point down the line, maybe great. as you're further in your in your second in the second book, um, the sequel book. But uh, I want to end today's conversation by just vulnerably asking, what critical advice, what word would you give me in this particular juncture of unknowing? I'm here. I am 38 between jobs, I have no idea what's next, trying not to panic about unemployment. <laughs> also, being a single mom and being single in this weird reality. And it feels as if that cliff that I've kind of held at bay for most of my life in some way or another, like, and I, and I thought I fell off it. Well, now I'm falling off it again. Whatever this next cliff is, I'm, I'm, I'm just falling through the air. So here I am. What what would you offer me and through me to listeners for this time of unknowing? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just to say survival is underrated and be good to yourself because you're juggling a lot. And all of us are. I mean, everybody on the earth has been through the same pandemic storm and we don't know if things are about to get better or things are about to get worse. And in fact, both will happen to some people. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. I'd say, um, Brie, if I could say something about folks who uh, find the kind of contemplative tradition to be useful, something I think you're, to tell me if I'm misunderstanding you, but I think something you're trying to do is warn people 
that there is a way that your reorder can become, have some of the unhelpful characteristics of the first order. And that don't be afraid if that reorder needs to experience another level of disorder. And I have a feeling that we'll keep going through that process our whole lives to some degree. But I, I think it'll especially keep happening until we relieve whatever the reorder is of an expectation that's unhelpful. And there are probably a lot of ways to express that expectation, but one is to say, oh, now I've got it right. Can I give an example of this? Yes, um, please, yeah. So let's say you can imagine somebody who grows up Christian and all of the doctrines and beliefs and politics just drives them crazy. And they discover yoga. And, and for, I have a friend who's a theologian, and he, he honestly tells me, yoga has helped me more than all of my years of theology. So then, because you get involved with yoga, then you're exposed to the five chakras. And then through chakras, you're exposed to this idea of energy. And you can imagine a person being so thoroughly immersed in this that it feels like the solution to all their problems. But then you can imagine a person saying, hold it just a minute. Do I believe that chi is literally physically real? Like I used to believe in God as this powerful guy sitting on a white throne and my, those ideas had to be deconstructed. Do I now believe that there's this sort of invisible gas called chi that moves around or a little ball of invisible light that moves around? And then you could start to think, oh my gosh, I've become as literalistic about my new order as I was about my old order. And then you could think, I'm done with this for good. I'm not going to fall for this again. That's one option. Or you could double down and say, now I'm finally right. <laughs> or you could say, ha ha, it's a mystery still. And to me, the, the sort of almost whimsical, it's still a mystery. You know, it's still a mystery. I, when I was a pastor outside of Washington, D.C., I had a lot of, you know, people who you say, what do you do for a living? And they would say, I'm actually a rocket scientist because they worked, <laughs> because they worked at NASA. And there was one rocket scientist that I, I'd have lunch with every once in a while, and I'd ask him my astrophysics questions. And I remember for probably four or five lunches, I said, help me understand gravity. And he just would get such a kick out of me because he would say, if you understood what I understand, you'd know that it's a nonsensical question. The one thing we know about gravity is that we don't know what it is. And all we have is theories and none of our theories work. And you, I remember getting the feeling it was part of his delight in being a scientist that he had no idea what gravity was. I being a you know, non-physicist, I think I know what gravity is until I talk to him. And, and then at certain moments, I would share his delight. And yeah, to me, that's, that's part of what we're after is a sense of delight at our unknowing. It like, isn't this wonderful? That reality really is boundless. And then in a certain sense, then it lets me say, you know, God bless yoga and God bless Tai Chi and God bless, you know, uh, as, as creating a language to try to understand and God bless Catholicism and God bless Methodism as creating languages. And, and 
God save us from all of these things ever making us think we've finally banished the wonder and the mystery, because if we succeeded in doing that, we would have just committed suicide. <laughs> With my whole heart, I feel, and in my whole body, I feel, which is, for me, the location of whatever my practice is these days, yeah. it's got to be here and it has yeah. to be as ordinary as this, because this is the one place that I trust is that intersection where where faith becomes an offering of creativity in some way, that what you're saying is the the kind of the the, the inside joke of the universe. It's like this, <laughs> this, our hunger and our need to understand is beautiful and our need to express is beautiful just as our need to let go of each expression is necessary for there to be another one. And what I feel in your invitation, Brian, is permission. Permission to just be as we are in the midst of not knowing, to be uncertain, to not have it figured out. Because we've spent a lot of time on this conversation talking about maps as belief systems, but that can also apply to arrival points in success, right? Yes. If your whole life, if your map was about succeeding and making a certain amount of money or being on top in some way, this applies to that also, because on the other side of that is the question mark of where's their delight, as you said. How can we follow delight? Because that feels like a gateway to a way of being human and present that's connected. I want to be there. I want to live there. And I'd rather wait in the midst of not knowing to discover that that's like the secret I'm already in than to be chasing after an arrival point and miss it. So can't thank you enough for taking the time to hang out with me this morning and offer us your wisdom. And I'm definitely going to be hitting you up for a part two, just so you're aware. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm all in. Thanks, Bree. So my two takeaways from this conversation that I'm sticking in my pocket as true north wisdom for my inner compass. Ugh, compassion. Compassion. Compassion for ourselves and for each other. I loved the reminder that our brains are wired evolutionarily with efficiency in mind and as herd creatures. Autopilot is set to belong and fit in and don't rock the boat. So, of course, when we are in the midst of change and transcending old forms of belonging, it's exhausting. I don't know if you felt it listening to Brian. I always feel it when I'm speaking with him. Brian is such a compassionate human being. So when you're going through big change, if you are in the land of unknowing right now and your friends and family or the gatekeepers are highly concerned at best or obnoxiously uh, threatened at worst. Have a little compassion for our evolutionary makeup. It's okay. It's okay that they're concerned. It's okay that you don't fit or belong in their frame anymore. It can all belong. Final piece of True North wisdom. Go play. Play and create. This is part of our divine calling. After all these stages of integration, what is left is full, embodied participation. So trust yourself. Trust this place you're in. 
try to have fun and create something new. That's it for today's episode of Unknowing. If you found this conversation helpful or meaningful, please consider rating the show or share it with a friend. You can also join the community of patrons who make this podcast possible. Look up patreon.com. Look for Bree Stoner. This music was brought to you by Avila, a band duo that I'm a part of. You can find this song. It's called Some Understanding. Download it wherever you get your music. And remember, as Rilke says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I'm trying to.